0: It's their mission to motivate, educate, and empower you to take your health to the next level. And now your hosts, hormone experts, Dr. Mackey and Dr. Davidson.
1: Hello, everyone. Thank you for joining us for another episode of the Progressive Health Podcast. I'm Dr. Mackey.
0: And I'm Dr. Davidson.
1: So today we're going to take a little bit of a deep dive. We're going to we always talk about sex hormones, estrogen, progesterone, testosterone. Today we're going to dive a little deeper into metabolic hormones.
0: And specifically, weight loss or weight gain.
1: Yeah, how our body stores fat, how our body burns fat. We're going to start off talking about the, this is a very classic, kind of biochemistry description the hormonal regulation of blood sugar and we'll get into that insulin and glucagon we'll talk about that in context to everyday life then we'll slide into as i just mentioned we'll slide into fat storage and fat burning and how that mechanism is controlled cuz so i think it's important to understand that because of all this nutritional information that we hear about understanding it at that level i think it makes things a lot clearer of as far as how you're supposed to approach it because you and I both hear it all the time, people like Dr. Davidson, and Dr. Mackey, I, I'm trying everything I can, no matter what I do, I can't lose weight.
0: All the time. You know, not, not every weight loss program works for everybody, but if you look at it through the long haul, most weight loss programs are caloric restriction. You reduce down your calories, you increase your exercise to further try to burn calories, and... What you'll end up seeing is I have some patients that lose weight only to gain it back and to gain more, and I have a lot of patients, actually probably quite a few patients in terms of in my practice at the moment right now that have lost a lot of weight in the past through that process, only to of course gain it back, try to do that same process again of reducing their calories to under a thousand calories, which is just basically starvation, and not be able to lose any weight, and they'll say, "Well, I lost it before." how come I'm doing the same thing now and I can't lose it again? Is it because I'm older? And you know, honestly, I'm not a proponent of saying age. Age is just a number, but it's really because those metabolic hormones, enzymes and proteins to be specific, have readjusted or rebalanced themselves. So basically you can't lose weight. You can't burn fat. What you end up doing is it's really you're sort of set in this sort of fast forward motion of only gaining weight.
1: Yeah. It's like a one direction track. There's not a give and a take. There's not an in and out. It just goes one direction. We're going to kind of illustrate At least that's what we hope to do is illustrate that point and using that as kind of a foundation, being able to make decisions off of that and further illustrating the point and how much calories don't matter. And as you said, over the course of lifetime, people say, as you just mentioned about how their metabolism slows down. Well, their metabolism their metabolism doesn't really slow down what does happen is they lose their muscle mass, they lose hormones, their metabolic hormones that we're going to talk about end up increasing. And that's why they can't lose weight. It doesn't really have as much to do with metabolism per se, as everyone thinks that it does.
0: Or age. I mean, when I turned 40, I'll be 44 this year. But when I turned 40, I had so many people that were older than me say, Oh, yeah, oh, yeah, now you're gonna start gaining the weight. Yeah, here, here it comes. Here it comes, you know, because as you get older, your metabolism slows down by I think even some one one pharmacist told me, Oh, yeah, it slows down by by 20%. It doesn't have to do with age. It has to do with the way those metabolic hormones and enzymes and proteins have established themselves over the long haul over the last, you know, 5, 10, 15 years. But as Dr. Mackey said, it's almost like a one way, you know, weight gain, weight gain, weight gain, where we understand how these processes are balanced. We can flip that switch so that we can our whole goal is to either lose the extra weight or maintain and maintain it or specifically maintain the healthy weight that our body wants to be at
1: right so now let's uh, segue into a little bit what I mentioned a second ago in hormone regulated blood sugar management how our body our body uh, spends a lot of energy on keeping blood sugar in this nice tight range basically one seventy to one forty okay fasting state's going to go down to seventy although you and I have seen lots of fasting blood sugars. Have What is the average fasting blood sugar you see for most people?
0: You know, granted, blood sugar, fasting glucose is one second and one moment of your day of your life. But you honestly, I see most of the time they're in the 90s.
1: And we're just at uh, A4M in December 2016, which we go to every year. And there was one of the presenters talking about blood glucose. Now, granted, you and I both agree that blood glucose isn't the only thing you should pay attention to. There's a lot of other parameter, blood parameters you should look at. However, from a fasting blood sugar perspective, your risk for developing diabetes goes up significantly for every point above 84. You and I do blood fasting blood sugars on people all the time. And I never see blood sugars in the 80s, in the mid 80s. Everybody, as you said, is 95 or higher, if not bordering on 100. That already tells you that there's a problem if that is their consistent blood sugar. And if you go back and look over the course of their life or even the last five years, they had one blood test a year like most people do with their insurance or whatever. There is a gradual trend or rise to those fasting blood glucose numbers.
0: And then they'll say, oh, look, my blood glucose is getting close to that out of range. I better go on a diet, which that's like the totally wrong thing to do because just looking at that glucose and seeing it rise is a sign. It's a sign to say, hey, we need to do something a little bit different to balance those hormones, not just reduce my calories and make it even worse.
1: Yeah, right. And this hormonal mechanism we're going to talk about here in a second, how that mechanism is getting worse you're actually breaking that mechanism. Once that mechanism's broke, guess what? That's what diabetes is. So the two hormones, the two basic hormones, again, we're simplifying this, we're going to save a few of the hormones for our next episode, but the two that are most important in this process is insulin and glucagon.
0: So insulin and glucagon are both secreted from the pancreas and they're basically what they say inversely proportional to each other. So that means if insulin is high, glucagon is low. If glucagon is high, then insulin is high. And now insulin, as we've always talked about insulin a lot, is insulin is a fat storing hormone. So insulin goes up in a fed state and glucose actually is going to try to help bring up someone's low blood sugar. So usually glucagon is high in a fasting state.
1: Yeah, right. So in an everyday situation, you get up, you eat breakfast, hopefully eat some breakfast. Most people don't, right? How many of your patients eat breakfast in the morning?
0: You know, I would say probably 50-50. I love breakfast. Yeah, I right. notice you don't like breakfast that much. Oh, well,
1: I don't eat as early as you do, but I still do eat breakfast. But you're re- you're religious. You eat breakfast like right away when you wake up. Yep. 5.50 uh,
0: to 6.15.
1: Yeah, yeah. Uh, and most people, when I talk to patients, and I'm sure you hear the same thing, people are like, oh, well, I'm just not that hungry. You know, I'm kind of nauseous. I don't really feel all that good. That already tells you that there's a problem. We should wake up and be relatively hungry to eat something, you know, within at least, let's say, half an hour to two hours before upon waking. You should wake up with a little bit of an appetite.
0: Yeah. And have something. Yeah. Have some kind of calories or or food in your stomach.
1: Yeah. So, again, wake up, you have some breakfast, your insulin goes up. Hopefully your breakfast is not pancakes or French (laughs) toast. Hopefully it's a little bit more protein, fat based. So you don't get as much of a rise to your blood sugar. Therefore, the higher the rise to blood sugar, the higher the rise to insulin. Okay. So you have breakfast, your blood sugar goes up, your insulin goes up. And then three or four hours later, maybe four or five or six hours later, your insulin starts to gradually come down. Your blood sugar gradually comes down. And then as those both are decreasing, your glucagon starts to come up. Okay. So now as that comes up, there'll be some other things that are happening in that process that we're not going to talk about right now that start increasing your hunger and your appetite. We'll save those for later. So now you have in a technically a fasting state, which is really only three or four hours or maybe five or six hours since breakfast. And now your insulin is lower back to normal and your glucagon is elevated. And now it's time to do that process all over again.
0: Now, we have a lot of very savvy listeners that love all this technical science information. So we're saying glucagon, you know, what's glucagon? What about cortisol? Cortisol supposed to do that. Well, we're going to definitely get into cortisol because cortisol is a whole, I don't know, bag of bones in itself, you would say. Yeah, yeah. that's a whole it's, other, uh, you know, a, open
1: up Pandora's box yeah. there a little bit, for
0: sure. But, but glucagon is kind of like one of those, I guess, as you had said the other day when we were talking about this podcast, glucagon just isn't sexy. Cortisol's sexy, but glucagon's not, you know, because cortisol's all over the place. High cortisol, high belly fat. But glucagon actually has a lot of the same characteristics of cortisol.
1: Yeah, right. So again, the hormonal regulation, a lot of energy spent to keeping it in that range. American lifestyle, almost everything that we do as Americans, we are pushing the boundaries to that hormonal regulation. That's why you start to see those blood sugars start to creep up little by little, little by little, little by little. You know, maybe when they're in their teens or twenties, it's in the eighties. You have very efficient blood sugar control. Maybe you do, maybe you don't. Even in the adolescence or teenage years, you might already start pushing that system. And you can usually look at someone if they're already gaining weight at an early age, maybe puberty happens and all of a sudden they put on some weight, especially in the middle. Yeah. Right. You know that that hormonal regulating system is being stressed to the max. And then that's where you're talking about. It's not age. It's not metabolism. It's the progression of that same kind of lifestyle over the course of a lifetime that ends up causing big problems as as time goes on.
0: So as we mentioned, you know, we ate food, hopefully not pancakes for breakfast, but let's say somebody did eat pancakes for breakfast. That would make their insulin shoot up because their glucose shot up. So, you know, the faster the glucose shoots up, the faster the insulin shoots up. As we said before, insulin, it's a storage hormone. It's a fat storage hormone. So then you end up storing all those pancakes as fat. But let's say you did skip breakfast. You know, I want to skip breakfast because I want to save those calories for something yummy later in the day. Of course, it doesn't quite work that way. But let's say we, we skipped breakfast that, you know, my blood sugar starts to drop, my stomach's empty, a lot of other hormones that we'll get into later are doing things, but glucagon is secreted from the pancreas then I think it would be good to describe exactly what glucagon does and how it does that so that we can further understand the system so we can kind of, I guess, reverse engineer it.
1: Yeah, right. So as you were saying, as you eat breakfast, time goes on, your blood sugar is dropping, your glucagon is coming up. And to maintain that balance and maintain that blood sugar range, the glucagon is telling your liver through a process called gluconeogenesis. Some of you've probably heard that term or read it on another blog post or something that is gluconeogenesis. So you're telling the glucagon hormone is telling the liver to make glucose, right? Okay? And it does that by basically breaking down glycogen. Glycogen in the liver is you know, literally stored glucose. Packs it up. It's in the liver, mainly in the liver, and it's also in our muscle tissue. So that when we, really from a fight or flight perspective, right, when we need energy right away, we're trying to run from a bear or run from a fellow caveman. We have energy like in the moment to do that. So we have this really highly performance energy source at our disposal at any given time.
0: So when you're skipping that breakfast, that glucagon goes up, it tells the liver to do gluconeogenesis, then you mobilize that glucose from the liver and the muscles is when you raise up that glucose, you haven't eaten anything, but the glucose is raised to, you know, keep you from passing out and dying because your blood sugar dropped too low. But let's, you know, let's say that glucose has come up. Then what the pancreas senses, there's a rise in glucose in the bloodstream. It doesn't care where it came from, whether it came from pancakes or it came from, from the liver. It just, the pancreas says, hey, there's a rise in glucose in the bloodstream. So what am I going to do? I'm going to go ahead and secrete some insulin to allow that glucose to get into the store for is stored into a cell for energy. So here you have, No food. You're fasting. You haven't eaten anything, but the insulin is already being risen because of that glucagon. Yeah,
1: you're getting. And I know that.
0: I'm sorry. I I know that sounds weird. I guess I kind of worded that weird because, like I said, when glucagon's up, insulin's low. But because of that, that gluconeogenesis that is instigated from the rise in glucagon then the blood sugar goes up, the glucagon goes down, and then the insulin comes up. And I know that was a big mouthful. I hope it made sense.
1: Oh, no, I think that's clear, right? So the way to maintain that blood sugar is for the glucagon to release the glycogen. But then as a consequence of that rise in blood sugar, you get this kind of indirect rise to insulin at the same time. So you're basically having insulin present in a fasting state. Now, normally under normal balanced hormonal conditions, that's not a big deal, right? That's not a big deal. But then you have a meal like Eustace, you just said, you're trying to save calories. You might have a salad for lunch or something. And then by the time you get to dinner, what happens at dinner?
0: Oh, you're starving. Let's have some carbs. Let's have some alcohol.
1: Yeah. Alcohol. Maybe, the, you know, you're going to go out to happy hour. You're not in the mind frame or in the mindset of eating some vegetables, right? Yeah, to
0: make a, a good choice because There's other hormones we're going to definitely talk about that make your appetite almost like it's willpower doesn't work. You know, you've been trying to cut back your calories, your stomach's empty, that insulin had already been risen, even though you haven't eaten anything, you're in a fasting state. So by the time you do make a choice, we're usually going to make a bad choice. And that usually ends up being some kind of sugar or carbohydrates, which then what does that extra sugar and carbohydrates on top of an already elevated insulin level do?
1: Yeah, right. So you're making food choices that are going to have probably the double whammy. They're going to have a high glycemic index, pasta, bread, cookies, crackers, carbs, alcohol, and it's going to have a high glycemic load because you're so hungry, you're going to probably overeat anyways. So you lose the rational control, maybe maybe not, but at least you're you're decreasing the likelihood that you're going to be able to maintain some control. And then like you said, you're The real double whammy is you're putting insulin on top of insulin. And as your liver becomes further exposed to insulin over time, the liver stops responding to the insulin over time. Then what does that do? Then the pancreas makes more and the liver stops responding. And this vicious cycle is kind of set in motion. And that's what happens over the course of several decades for people, right? It doesn't happen all of a sudden. Some of the people in our country, the ones that maybe gain a lot of weight very rapidly, They're the ones that are maybe genetically predisposed to that process and they gain weight really rapidly. They put on lots of weight because once that process is set in motion, then like you said, then all the other appetite triggers and hunger triggers don't work or mechanisms don't work anymore either. And it's a feed forward system. The more you have, the more you want. And we'll talk more about those on upcoming episodes. Right now, we're just talking about how this one very important basic mechanism gets distorted. And we push the boundaries of that on a, literally on a daily basis.
0: Yeah. On kind of an example of that is I, we have a lot of different patients, you know, one patient I can think of in particular, you know, she's been wanting to lose weight and she says, why can't I lose weight? Why am I not losing weight? And when you break it down, she skips breakfast, she skips lunch so she can save all her calories for like tacos at night. And I said, well, how many calories are you eating at, you know, how many calories are you eating in a day? 800 calories, but they they're all at night and they're all carbs.
1: Yeah. Right. So there's a certain, uh, and you can already tell if she's not having any success and that's where it becomes very complicated. How do you explain that in a reduced caloric environment? Partially it's based on food choice, right? The food choice, the glycemic load, the glycemic index is not right. So now the response to those hormones or the hormonal response to those foods is over exaggerated, and that's why even though she's eating a lower amount of food, the body still doesn't do what it's supposed to do, which is lower the weight. Okay So now let's you know I think that's fairly clear. Hopefully that wasn't too complicated. Hopefully we at least establish this balance between insulin and glucagon. Insulin's high in a fast in a, f- a well-fed state and glucagon is low in a fed state and then they, they flip-flop as you're hungry, insulin goes down, glucagon goes up. That's the basic mechanism. And now we're going to segue into looking at how the body's on a fat cell level. So we're going to dive down to this microscopic level. If we're like on the surface of a fat cell. Okay. So uh, we, none of us can really visualize that, but just think of yourself, you know, mini me version of yourself on the surface of fat cell. And we're staring out at the hormone insulin. Okay. So we have there's two enzymes that are being produced by that fat cell. One of those enzymes is called lipoprotein lipase. And another enzyme is called hormone sensitive lipase. And then insulin is basically the one that controls both of those. So in that example you just gave, we're in the high glycemic, high glycemic load situation based on what they're consuming from a food perspective it's going to raise your insulin as your insulin goes up insulin turns on lpl lipoprotein lipase and now you're going to shuttle fatty acids sugar and carbohydrates get turned into fatty acids and then now your body is going to store that as triglycerides in your fat cells okay that is what's happening literally all the time every day the more carbs you eat carbs get turned into fat fat doesn't get turned into fat carbs get turned into fat Via this conversion, uh, which we don't need to go into, but carb, you know, sugar, glucose get turned into acetyl-CoA and acetyl-CoA turns into basically how our body, you know, fatty acids and then triglycerides. Okay, That's complicated. You might come back to a little bit of that later on, but just know that when you eat a high propensity of your diet is highly refined, high glycemic index, high glycemic load foods, your body's going to turn those into fatty acids, and then store them as triglycerides.
0: And I can't stress enough, I know we were talking about blood sugar and maintaining blood sugar and blood sugar being up or down. It's really, that's more of like a little bit of a symptom because like I was mentioning, I can't stress enough that it really does come down to insulin. Insulin's the big ball in this show, you know, this it's mm-hmm. the, the big baller, right?
1: Yeah, yeah it really <laughs> is the, the proverbial 800-pound gorilla in the room that when you have discussions about weight loss, nobody ever talks about it. Everyone ignores it. I mean, it's talked about, if you look at the bariatric science, you know, the bariatric medicine, that's w- surgery, weight loss medicine, surgery you know for weight loss. They talk about it a little bit, but uh, not as much as they should. It should be the basis of every conversation because it's the only, and we didn't mention this earlier, insulin is the only fat storing hormone in your body. The only one. So how could storing fat, putting on weight, how could that be about anything else but insulin? Okay, now, granted, as you just said, Dr. Davidson, there are a lot of other things that play a role into that, but insulin has to be the basis of the conversation. So, again, back to the analogy. We are on the surface of the fat cell. There is one enzyme called LPL that makes our body store fat. Okay, We take free fatty acids from the blood and the body packages them up in a very particular way into a triglyceride. And now we add to our adipose tissue. Okay, Now, that is in a high insulin state. Now, let's say we go back to our analogy earlier um, when we are in a fasting state, our blood sugar goes down, our insulin goes down, our glucagon comes up. Now, as the insulin decreases, now another enzyme also secreted or released from the adipocyte or our fat cells is called hormone sensitive lipase or HSL. That enzyme helps mobilize triglycerides from fat cells and then breaks them down into free fatty acids so we can utilize them as energy.
0: Now, this hormone sensitive lipase, does this start to be does this start to rise after your glycogen stores are depleted?
1: Well, I don't think it matters about glycogen stores. You can still burn fat and have we'll get into glycogen a little bit, right? Glycogen is the storage form of of glucose in your liver. Granted, that amount is very finite. We only have a small amount of glucose that we can store there in a non exercise fasting state you have roughly three days worth of glycogen in your liver i'm almost twice your size i'm quite a bit bigger than you so you actually have a lot less glycogen than i do um, just based on size of the liver alone but now if we went out and did let's say we fasted for 24 hours or even you know 10 you know 10 to 12 hours and then did a a marathon or some kind of really major activity we deplete our glycogen stores a marathon runner probably the first five miles maybe 10 miles, maybe even less. I don't know. Their glycogen stores are empty, right? They deplete their glycogen stores immediately. And then your body goes into alternative fuel sources after that. So HSL is dependent on hormone sensitive lipase, meaning that it is, they should call it insulin sensitive lipase. Mm -hmm. They shouldn't call it hormone sensitive lipase. They should call it insulin sensitive lipase. Now, I think you and I would agree. And I think if you look at the literature, hormone sensitive lipase, it's sensitive to other hormones, not just insulin, but here's the key. As we talked about LPL, in a high glycemic index, high glycemic load environment, high insulin turns on LPL, you store a lot of fat. If your insulin stays elevated, like in America, like we've been talking about, then your insulin stays high and hormone sensitive life never becomes activated, right? So then your body can't actually release any of the fat, uh, the triglycerides, break them down into free fatty acids. Therefore, you can't burn any fat at all if the insulin's high all the time. So like you said, you get this one directional flow of fatty acids into the fat cells, and unfortunately, nothing's coming out.
0: And so we're talking about insulin being, so if we have insulin low, that turns on that HSL. But so people think, oh, well, to have my insulin low, I must be in a fasting state. I need to be in a fasting state. But something Dr. Mackey had told me a long time ago that always has stuck with me is, is food is a powerful tool that you can keep your insulin low with food. It just depends on the kinds of food. So you can still eat, keep your insulin low, which means that your glucagon isn't necessarily going to rise because your insulin isn't bottomed out. Your insulin is just on the lower end and then still be able to turn on that hormone sensitive lipase to burn the fatty acids without starving yourself.
1: Yeah, right. Because we've already hopefully established or everybody that listens to our podcast or other podcasts like ours, we don't have to convince you that it's not a calorie problem. And the body is so sensitive to a drop in calories, it is way more sensitive, negatively sensitive to a drop in calories than an excess of calories. The body ultimately, as long as they're, as you just said, the right type of calories, right? If they're the right type of calories, you can have as many calories as you want, especially if the lifestyle circumstances are relevant to that. I remember back and not this last Olympics, but the Olympics before when Michael Phelps won all his gold medals, eight or nine gold medals, whatever. And they are talking to him about his training methods. You know, he's like six, six and, you know, he was very highly conditioned athlete trains every day, six hours a day. And he was eating basically 10,000 calories a day, but he's not fat at all. If you ever see him, you know, on TV, he's about as lean as a guy can get. How can he eat 10,000 calories and not gain any weight? Right? He's conditioned himself. He couldn't just do that and not you know, utilize all that activity. He needs all those calories because he is exercising so much. Okay? Now, the normal average everyday person takes that idea and translates that into their own life. However, they make the fatal flaw. What my point is to this, they make the fatal flaw if they try to exercise that much, but they drop their calories. Okay, that is the part that everybody, the, ultimately the mistake they make, which is why it works initially the first six months to a year, and then it backfires the second six months to two years. Okay? And that is the part that we're trying to make people understand or help people understand that you can't just drop your calories and expect to have any success. And if that's been your approach, that's why you're not having any success.
0: So one other thing that we had talked about too, is when you drop your calories, then you do end up burning and you're not necessarily changing up the type of foods. It's like, oh, I'm just going to restrict my calories. I'm not actually going to change up the kind of foods. I still have some processed foods. I just don't have a lot or I'm starving myself. And then I have a whole bunch of processed foods is you do end up burning out your muscle. And that's, I'm sure not what Michael Phelps wanted to do.
1: Yeah, right. And I think that we can make the argument as well. And, you know, there's plenty of research to back this up that, The more muscle mass you have, the more fat you're going to burn, right? Muscles love, including your heart, muscles love to burn fatty acids as a fuel source. They would rather burn fatty acids than burn sugar. Your nervous system and brain love to burn sugar. Your muscles rather burn fat, okay? But most people with this analogy, this mechanism that we're talking about, because everyone's diet is so carbohydrate heavy, the average Americans consuming 65% of their calories from carbohydrates there is never a reason for them to ever have to burn any fat. They're always burning sugar. Therefore, that's going to be the default. There is no reason for their bodies ever to have to burn any fat. That's why it ends up becoming a one-track system. It's not this energy and, you know, it's not the flow in of fat and the mobilizing of fat. It's just, it's the storage of fat and that's it.
0: So when you're mentioning that we're average Americans are basically eating a, a carbohydrate you know, Latin type of meals, every meal, you know, for breakfast, they have pancakes or maybe they have cereal and then maybe have a sandwich for lunch and have some pasta for dinner. It's always carbohydrates. So that means again, I bring it back to the insulin. The insulin is always going to be elevated, but if you notice, and you know, we, we test insulin all the time, but a lot of doctors don't test insulin.
1: No, and I'm still kind of baffled as to why that is, right? That mm-hmm. is, with this mechanism, it's very clear. We've known about it this for a long time. We know that insulin is the problem, but yet all the information we were talking about blood sugar earlier, that's the only, that and hemoglobin A1C are the only two things that anybody pays attention to. Now, hemoglobin A1C is important, right? Because that's a progression over time. It shows, gives you an idea of average glucose range. Again, that you know, 70 to 140 that we're talking about, if you have, if your trend is on the higher side side of that on a regular basis well that's not great but that also means that your insulin is that much higher to boot right so we're putting together a little bit of a beta testing group we're going to experiment here a little bit we put together a lab test um, specifically for this idea to you know, look at people's insulin levels because we believe from a both opinion professional opinion and experience that this is really the most important thing to focus on whether we're talking weight loss or we're just talking health in general. Okay, on a, one of the earlier podcasts, episode six, I believe it was, we talked about insulin resistance specifically, and we go, I, you know, I talked about all the different conditions that are related to insulin resistance. That's really what we're talking about here. Okay, so we put together a test panel that we think has a lot of value, um, but is also very affordable at the same time. So you can look at these different parameters and get an idea of, if you want to call it anything, call it your insulin sensitivity. Is this a minor problem? Is this a moderate problem? Or is this a really high risk problem? Okay. And the problem that happens most of the time, if a doctor does do a fasting glucose and maybe they do a fasting insulin at the same time, that's great. But a lot of people that have normal fasting insulins, they fall through the cracks because they don't do insulin in response to a meal. Okay. So you get a moderately normal number in the morning when you go to the lab seven eight o'clock but now you never get tested because this is the norm right you never get tested after you've had a big lunch or that big dinner nobody tests you right after that. That's when in some ways you should be tested. So we're putting together this group. we're looking for approximately about 25 people because it'll be a little bit harder to handle more than that. so it's going to be a little bit of a closed group. we're probably gonna depending on on how it goes and how many people are interested we may continue it moving forward but we're gonna at least start with one group 25 people, The test is looking at several parameters and then also insulin response to glucose. So this is the catch. By doing this test, you have to be at the lab for about four hours. That's why this is not done very often. For all the you ladies out there that have had children, you have gone to the lab for four hours because you've done what they call a glucose tolerance test. They want to make sure that you're not gestationally diabetic. They want to make sure that your blood sugar is in that nice, normal range, but they never test your insulin. So in this context, we are going to, the insulin's are more important than your blood sugar is, we're gonna test your insulin. So carve out a day, go to the lab, you're there for four or five hours, they give you this sugary stuff, you drink it, they test your blood every hour after that. Then we're going to, once everyone has their test, we're going to reconvene and do a live training where I'm gonna walk through not everyone's specific test, but walk through the different parameters. There's nine tests that we're gonna be doing And going through the different numbers and explaining what the numbers mean and for yourself so you have a little bit of peace of mind to know where you are in that continuum. Is this a a low-risk problem, moderate-risk problem, or a high-risk problem? And that is really in that stage. If you're struggling with your weight, this is perfect for you. If you are pre-diabetic, this is perfect for you. Unfortunately, at this moment, if you're a diabetic, on diabetic medication or insulin, We can't really quite facilitate that quite yet. That might come later on. So this is for people that are before that stage, right? In some ways, we're talking about prevention. This is a way to accomplish just that.
0: And I know hanging out at the lab and getting your blood drawn even just once is kind of aggravating but staying there for four hours might seem a little irritating but it really does give you i mean it really does give you the best information i do a lot of fasting insulins and a lot of people that i already know have high insulin their fasting insulin actually comes out under 10 and which the reference range is under 20 so they say oh my my insulin's good But the only time I've ever seen really high fasting insulins, like up there at 25, 30, 40, these people, you are obviously very, very close to diabetes. I mean, when they say pre-diabetic, they're like right there on the cusp of it. And that's good because we can catch that and help reverse that. But what we want to do is catch it well before it even gets to that point, because these people already have a very stubborn weight problem, if not obesity. That we really have to pull ourselves back on where if we could catch it earlier, which would definitely be shown in these people with normal fasting insulins in the morning. But when you do that glucose tolerance insulin test, you really do see that insulin, that glucose do some very interesting things.
1: Yeah, right. And there's Dr. Kraft. He was a pathologist and he's got some studies and he did... What we're talking about, this type of a test, an insulin response to glucose test or a glucose tolerance test with insulin on like 15,000 people. And there are literally there are six very specific patterns of what happens in the three hours after you consume the glucose, and you can map it out on the graph based on your numbers, you can turn the numbers into a, a line graph, and you can basically see where you are in this continuum of what he called in the article. This is from several years ago. What they call a cult diabetes, we wouldn't really call it that now, but that's basically diabetes before you ever get diagnosed. You cannot wait for your blood sugar to become abnormal and for your doctor to diagnose you, because by that point, once your doctor diagnoses you as diabetic, you've probably been diabetic for five to ten years. It just hasn't that mechanism, that hormonal mechanism we were talking about earlier, the insulin and glucagon mechanism hasn't been completely broken yet. Your body is still maintaining control of that. So now that's from a disease perspective. We're also just, like I said, really what people are looking to accomplish. We're talking about it from a weight loss perspective and looking at some real objective data to say, okay, this is what the problem is. This is how bad the problem is. And then developing a plan and a strategy based on that kind of information. So this is really an educational training to get people some real world definitive information to say, okay, this is what my problem is. This is why I'm having trouble. Okay. Uh, and then that way, you know, the patients that you and I always see, and that's why we've come to this point because we hear it over and over and over. I can't lose weight. I can't lose weight. I can't lose weight. Why can't I lose weight? Well, in some ways, depending on the results of this type of a test, that's part of the reason why they're having so much challenge because it's a hormonal blockade. Literally it's a hormone and enzyme roadblock that is saying it's not going to happen. It's not going to happen until that mechanism is fixed. It'll be very difficult, regardless of how little you eat and how much you exercise. It will not change.
0: So with that testing, there's some other tests on there, too. That's checking for inflammation. And in fact, do you want to read off all the tests?
1: So we're going to look at, as you said, some inflammatory markers. We're going to look at fasting blood sugar our fasting glucose, insulin, insulin response to glucose. And there's a couple other ones, RBC, magnesium and a, and a few other Cholesterol. things. Cholesterol. Yes, cholesterol
0: isn't the be all end all for anything, but it'll be on there.
1: This is stuff that I see a lot of people in California from Kaiser. Kaiser is an HMO, huge in California. And the tests that we're doing, except for the cholesterol and maybe oh, hemoglobin A1C is also on there, minus hemoglobin A1C and a cholesterol, none of the other tests are ever run. None of them. That's the point. We're filling in a gap there that is not done in a conventional sense. When you go to your doctor and they're like, oh, everything's fine. Everything's fine. Or it's, as we mentioned, it's progressively getting worse. This is going to provide clear information to say, okay, this is where the system is. It's in a good state. It's in a bad state. It's in a really bad state. And we can make the clinical decisions based on that information. When you're looking just at blood sugar, hemoglobin A1C, you're missing a huge part of that story. So, for those of you that are interested, you can go to the the progressurehealth.com backslash IT. This is going to, this live training that we're going to do once people have had their tests. So depending on how many people are interested, we're going to have to allow time for people to get their testing done. And then after the testing is already done, then we do the live training to go over everybody's results. So that's going to take at least a couple of weeks to be able to accommodate everyone. So this is going to probably be done towards the beginning part, middle part of March to the beginning part of April. Uh, You know, we're not exactly sure on the exact date. The response that we get will help us determine when that's going to be and the logistics of all that. So figure on probably right around the beginning of April, we'll start the group. And for now, it's going to be a one-time thing, 25 people, give or take, that's what we're looking for. And then after that, we will, depending on the response and how many people are interested, we'll probably open it up after that. But then that way there'll be some direct collaboration. We can talk in a live manner via webinar, discuss these numbers, figure out what they mean and go from there. It should be very fun and very educational.
0: So I know we talked about insulin today, hormone sensitive lipase, glucagon, protein lipase uh, or lipoprotein lipase as Dr. Mackey likes to call it. Potato, potato. (laughs) But, you know, there's there's so many other hormones, but I know that, you know, we're running out of time here. But in the next episode, we'll also go into some of the other metabolic hormones and enzymes and proteins that all kind of run together because there's a lot of information to go over. And I had touched on cortisol earlier as I really want to spend a lot more time on cortisol. So we definitely don't have time on this episode to do that, but we'll do that on the next one.
1: Yeah. So thank you for listening. Uh, This has hopefully not been too confusing. Hopefully we've uh, (laughs) not made it more complicated. Hopefully we've at least painted the picture and made the point that we are trying to do. If you have questions, if it was confusing, just of course, let us know and we'll continue the next one. We're going to focus a little bit more on those adrenal hormones because that, of course, as we all know, the adrenal stuff is really, really popular stuff right now.
0: All right. Thank you for listening.
1: All right. Take care. See you on the next episode. Take care. Bye-bye.
0: Thank you for listening to the Progress Your Health podcast. If you like what you've heard on this podcast, please give us a positive review on iTunes. This allows us to spread our message, grow our audience, and help more people around the world. For more information, visit our website at ProgressYourHealth.com.